You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 83, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today I'm going to be delivering the second part of a two-part series on how you and your team can work effectively remotely. Before I get started, I want to remind you to head over to our website at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about how to be more focused, productive, creative, and happy using technology. And sign up for our mailing list to receive a free guide on how to find balance and manage your technology use with mindfulness. Now back to today's episode on how to work effectively remotely. And today we're going to focus more on how your team can work effectively. Ever since the coronavirus hit and people have been working from home, not going into their workplaces all around the world, company executives and managers, team leaders are scrambling to figure out how to maintain the productivity of their teams, just as we talked last time about how all of us are scrambling to figure out how to maintain our own personal productivity. It's important, though, to remember it helps to recognize that the situation may not be as bad as it seems by remembering that the reality that remote work was already on the rise before the coronavirus hit, with several thousand companies around the world already being fully distributed and with more going that route every year. Just to give you some numbers on it, according to global workplace analytics, even before the coronavirus, 3.2% of the U.S. workforce worked from home with remote work growing in size by 140% since 2005. And that's roughly 10 times faster than the rest of the U.S. workforce. Another survey by Dr. Peter Hurst of the MIT Sloan School of Management found that offering remote work options to employees made them happier, more engaged, and reduced attrition. So investing some time and energy into learning how to maintain productivity with a remote team might not only be valuable during the crisis when you're required to have a remote team, but also may make it worthwhile to consider keeping that remote team, at least as an option or some of the time, even after it becomes possible to return to the workplace. So today I'm going to share with you four tips for helping your team to work effectively remotely. The first one is to have your team stick to their daily routine. We know that one of the greatest killers of productivity is to have your routine completely upended. And particularly if you have no routine or a routine that's constantly changing, most people don't handle that well and it really cuts into their productivity. And sure, even when you were working at an office or other physical workplace together, you might have gotten distracted there and interrupted by people coming into your office or from meetings, but at least you had a morning routine at home before you left for work and then a commute and then the physical office or other workplace. They all acted as powerful and affected triggers that shifted you into the, the work mindset and that getting things done productivity mode each day from the moment you woke up to get ready for work all the way through the end of your workday. My first suggestion is to utilize the power that triggers have 
to simulate your team's workday. To help understand this, I want to refer to James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones, where he talks about the power that triggers have in building habits. And, and everyone who studied the building of habits and maintaining of habits has recognized um, the value of triggers. And specifically, triggers are the first step in establishing any habit. And by creating your own triggers, you can control the creation of new positive habits that you choose intentionally to form. And as soon as you began working from home, unless you made a conscious effort to create new triggers, you you no longer had the triggers you had before, like the trigger of leaving the house, the trigger of getting in the car, the trigger of walking into your workplace. You lost all of those. And yet you did have new triggers from once you were working at home. They just weren't ones that you chose uh, to adopt in order to make you more productive. You know, those triggers are things like seeing the TV in front of you or seeing the couch or the refrigerator or the bed. You know, all of these things that are not really very conducive to work. They trigger your mind to think of engaging in other activities, not work. That's that's the way in which they are triggers. And then if you are not being mindful and you just react to the triggers like seeing the couch, you could sit down on it and take a nap kind of automatically or without much conscious thought. And so basically all of these other external triggers are now calling out to you from home. <laughs> you know, it's like they're they're crying out to you. And then they they stimulate internal triggers and reaction patterns within you as you're trying to work from home and they draw you in really to take part in, oh, you know, your mind says, oh, it's just going to be a small minute of resting or relaxation or something else, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just about becoming intentional about all of this. So to stop these kinds of things from becoming harmful distractions, I suggest that you need to do everything you can to make sure that you and your team retain or create as many of the positive triggers, including pre-existing ones, as possible in order to simulate your workday. For example, here's a few concrete examples. You can encourage your team to continue waking up, engaging in the same pre-work routine as before, whether it's getting a shower, eating breakfast at a certain time, as if they had to leave the house at a certain time. So continue starting work at the same time altogether. You could replace the commute with something else that still has an element of routine and which still acts as a trigger to start shifting you into work mode. So that could be 15 minutes before the start of the day when you and your colleagues get together on Zoom and just chat or engage in more social interactions. That could be like a commute. And why is it a trigger? Well, by you see your work colleagues, you talk to them, that can help to trigger your mind to shift into work mode, particularly when it's a regular routine. Uh, your brain will start learning, oh, this is what we do before we start the, quote, real work. Some other things you can do, and, and I'm sure many of you have been doing this already in recent months, which is replace a, a daily stand-up or check-in meetings with Zoom meetings or something similar. 
you know, in general, I know we can all experience Zoom fatigue. A lot of people have been talking about this. So there has to be some balance. But using video, I find, and many people find, can help uh, focus your attention because you're using both visual and auditory input. You're seeing people, you're hearing them, and it can help you focus on them and get more into that work zone than if you're just on the phone when it's easy for your, your gaze to wander around. You can also consider keeping meetings in place where they used to be and where they usually would be at the same time, let's say, of day or the same day of the week. And then, you know, I'd encourage people, and I know there's a lot of, a lot of debate and disagreement about this, of getting dressed in a presentable work manner. It may not be necessarily the same as you would have before. I find that changing into work clothes before I sit down at my computer, even if I'm not going to be meeting with anyone, is yet another trigger that reminds my mind and my body that I'm shifting into work mode. It also has the practical benefit that if you get surprised by someone who wants to get on a Zoom call, uh, you don't have to stress out and get changed. But the main point is it's a trigger. And at the end of the day, I actually change into more casual clothes. It reminds me now the workday is over. And then you're sending that signal to other people when they see you in work clothes and you see them in work clothes. This can all be subtle. They, they can act at an unconscious level, but be helpful in, in really powerful ways. You can still have your you know, happy hours or other social gatherings, but do them by Zoom. Do them after hours or whenever you would have done them before. These are triggers that the day is over or that the week is over. Don't necessarily just drop these things. And I know many people who are, who are doing this kind of thing. And I'd suggest continuing your one-on-one meetings with people who you had before, not just because of the substantive issues you can discuss, but to keep the habit and routine of, of meeting with people and kind of reminding your, your brain subconsciously that you're in work mode. And so these are just a few examples. The key thing is, and you'll probably find others on your own, to think about what can you do that's the same as what you did before or that serves the same purpose. You know, I'm not telling you to get physically on a train like you used to when you commuted, but maybe by having that Zoom meeting with colleagues or with the people you used to commute with, that can serve the same triggering, transitioning function as the commute used to. So you may need to be a little bit creative about what to do in this regard. So whatever you do, the, the key is just to, to keep the triggers going, either the same old ones or some new ones. A second point I'd like to make or suggestion I'd like to make is to understand how intentions and perceptions affect remote communication, your own intentions and perceptions and those of the people you're communicating with. And it's so easy to miss out on this, but it can cause problems when we are only communicating with people remotely and don't have any of that old face-to-face time. For example, you know, you might be using video chat for meetings. And I think in many ways that's useful because we can see each other's facial expressions and pick up on body language, which is really helpful. It's not just helpful to avoid miscommunications, but just to connect with people as human beings. But when we switch to using things like texting or using text only, whether it be email or Slack, and we don't see those cues, it's very easy to slip up and either say things that are hurtful in some way or for the person receiving and reading the text to misinterpret them 
because they can't pick up on your tone of voice. Uh, you know, sarcasm is not something that's easy to convey by text, and I don't suggest trying. And when you're reading a message, it's easy to assume that someone was being sarcastic when they really had no intention of being sarcastic. So, you know, text-only communication, I don't mean text messages only, I mean, it can be Slack, it can be email, anything that doesn't have video or audio in it, it can, has a real tendency to have the potential to be disconnecting or contribute to hurt feelings. And one way we can try to counteract this, particularly when we are the one reading the message, is a term I love, which is coined by the author Robert Hanlon. It's the concept he calls Hanlon's razor, which states that we should always assume ignorance before malice when communicating with those around us. In other words, someone says something, you're hurt by it. Don't assume that they intended to hurt you or that there was a bad intent behind it. Instead, if you can, the first assumption should be that they weren't trying to hurt you and that there was some ignorance uh, behind what they said, or maybe you're just misinterpreting what they're saying. Why is this so important? Well, as I talked about uh, visual cues, according to a study in the Journal of Consulting Psychology, 50, at least 55%, and I've heard higher numbers than this, of communication is visual including movements of the eyes, face, and body, including posture and use and positioning of our legs and hands. Significant part is also auditory, tone of voice, you know, speed of voice. I've often heard it said it's more important how you say something than what you're saying. And so believe it or not, the content of what you're saying may only be about 20% of what the other person is receiving. A lot of what they pick up on is, is visual and auditory. You know, when you're communicating face-to-face, -face, there are just countless nonverbal cues we pick up on, which send signals to the brain where, of the person we're speaking with, which tells them that we're on their side. But when we're communicating just with text or even sometimes with audio, that message may be missing, and it can be easier for the other person to not think we're on their side and actually think that we're, we have some ill intent towards this. The problem, and I've talked about this a lot on the podcast and in the blog, we have brains that are wired to a certain extent to be on the lookout for threats. And our brains can sometimes tend to label anything that we're uncertain about as a threat instead of assuming, uh, like Hanlon's razor, that, uh, that all that's behind that, that uncertain message is ignorance or misunderstanding. So when we don't have all the information we'd have in a face-to-face -face, uh, interaction, just a slight turn of phrase can lead us to assume that the other person's like talking down to us or being negative or critical or attacking us, when in reality, that's not really the case at all. So what can you do about this? <laughs> this is the real question. In addition to trying to have meetings to the extent possible by video or audio, which can really help. I know it can be tiring, so you may want to not do it for all, all meetings. And it's not always the most efficient way either. The main thing on both ends is when you're the sender, think carefully about whether there might be any ambiguity in the message you're sending that could be interpreted the wrong way. And you know, you, there's only so far you can go. Uh, you can't think about every possible way someone might interpret something you're writing, but just be be thoughtful and mindful about it and do your best. And then on the receiving end, when you are the one reading a message, 
Try to cultivate the habit of assuming the best, giving the benefit of the doubt to the person who wrote or sent that message instead of assuming the worst intent. And remember, remember Hanlon's razor, assume ignorance before malice. I like to think I would eliminate all other possibilities before concluding that the other person was trying to be hurtful to me. And this can just help avoid or clear up so many uh, miscommunications, particularly when we're interacting virtually. Third pointer, be really wary of the effects that isolation can have when working remotely. One of the most unexpected and really potentially serious effects of remote work is the isolation we can all feel after having worked from home for so long, particularly under this kind of extreme isolation that we're experiencing. I'm speaking now early August 2020 in Massachusetts, USA. We've been working uh, from home since March, so that's five months. And you know, it's, it's not just normal working from home. It's working from home plus social distancing and, and all of that. And I know I can feel it. I've been speaking to people recently who said it feels like it's the new layer of stress and difficulty arising from the length of time this has been going on. I used to, when working from home, break the isolation. I go to a cafe or even a library, even if it was quiet, just to see people around me could be comforting and feel like uh, I wasn't as isolated. And there's just few or no opportunities to do that safely now. So I think it just it's understandable that it's this is all increasing our feelings of isolation. And it's not just boring or not fun. Isolation can have real serious consequences and, and physiological and psychological effects on us in terms of loneliness, which can lead to, you know, at, its, at its most extreme, depression, but even less serious forms of psychological unwellness. And then without regular deep interactions with other people, it can affect our sleep it can create a low level of stress that is draining to us. And there's been a bunch of research, uh, for example, and there's many, many aspects of this. We know about at least some of the harmful physiological effects of isolation because of the work of neuroscientist Stephen Porges, uh, where he was the discoverer of the vagus nerve, which is a nerve that's responsible for influencing various different aspects of our physical and, and mental well-being. According to his original research, that nerve split into two at a point in our evolutionary history. The first section of which we retained from our reptilian ancestors, and the second of which we inherited from our first mammalian ancestors. But it's the newer part of the vagus nerve, which is the most important one in this instance, this is the part of the nerve that fires any time we interact with another human being. And it activates our so-called social engagement system and sends signals throughout our body. And this, this social engagement system, so to speak, works a lot like a muscle. The more you use it, the better shape it's in. And the less you use it, that muscle eventually becomes weak and can even atrophy. And you know, that's, that's a, an, an effect of severe loneliness, which can be caused by long-term isolation, which is something that typically m only few people experience, but now many of us are experienced. And research has shown that prolonged isolation can lead to serious 
conditions, including anxiety, and as I mentioned, clinical depression. So this is not just, I'm feeling a little lonely. It's something to be really um, attuned to. So, you know, in terms of teams, the main thing is just to be aware of this fact that social isolation is not just kind of an annoyance or something that we don't have to worry about because we'll get back to uh, being, being connected with each other later. It's really important to encourage social interaction among your team when they're working remotely, really for the, for the psychological health and well-being of everyone on the team. It may also, as a side effect, increase productivity, but I'm suggesting, you know, do it even if it doesn't increase productivity, just because it's necessary and people are not getting social interactions in other ways. And, and if, you know, we're all spending so many of our waking hours working, it's really important for, for team, people working in teams to get some of what they need as human beings in terms of social interaction in their work with their teams. And if you're leading a team, you know, you need to take the lead, help people set up their schedules, schedule those meetings, encourage, set the tone for people to interact with each other, even if it's not strictly productive or necessary for, for getting work done. Uh, check in with people, see how they're doing, see if they need more interaction with each other and find ways to help enable that to happen. And of course, on this uh, podcast and our blog, we talk a lot about individual ways uh, that you can help maintain your mental health. You know, I'm not going to talk a lot more about them here, but that would include, of course, meditating, exercising, taking walks. I've done and I've spoken to other people who have gone on longer drives now. You go out for an errand and just drive a little bit longer than you need to. It's not social, but it can still break some of the monotony and help, help uh, maintain your mental health. So in terms of teams, even though a lot of these things I just mentioned are individual, as a team leader, if you're aware of what things people can do individually, you can then be ready to make suggestions to people. Hey, are you getting enough exercise? Here's some exercise you can do. You know, get out for a walk at least. It's so easy now to just be sitting at a desk all day uh, working. So you can encourage this and then set the tone that this is not only okay to do, you know, during your quote workday, but encouraged to do. And the last thing I'm going to say is not so much a pointer or suggestion, but just the realization that even when things go back to, quote, normal, uh, and I can't predict the future, but it seems quite likely that that's not going to be things returning to just the way they were before. Even after it becomes safe to return to physical workplaces, I suspect that um, many organizations are either not going to require everyone to do it in the numbers that they did before, and that many people and organizations are going to choose not to be working together physically, at least to the same extent, the same amount as before necessarily. Who knows how it's going to pan out, uh, but there may be some hybrid with people working from home individually some of the time and together some of the time. So any time and effort you invest now in learning how to be more productive and healthy, working remotely, both individually and as part of a team and as a leader of a team, will pay off later for you because the, these are skills and habits that are going to, you're going to need to draw on, I think, in some form for a very long time, long after the crisis quote, quote ends. And 
as we know, that there may not be a clear end to it. This might be something that tails off gradually over months or years. Uh, who knows? Who knows? So plan for the long term and re- realize even if it's going to take some effort to develop new habits, these triggers, these routines, coping strategies, you know, it's something that's going to benefit you and your team and organization for a long time. You know, just think of it as an opportunity to learn new skills and habits for the really the future of work, which is coming on us rapidly. I mean, this whole situation has made certain changes occur overnight that might have taken a very long time otherwise. So just it's that's all by way of encouraging you to take the time to do this because it will pay off quickly, but also then for a long time to come. I hope you find that helpful. Thanks so much for joining me for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Today, I'm Robert Plotkin. I hope you enjoyed this second part of how to transition yourself and your team to remote work effectively. If you like today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review, and share the episode with your friends. And don't forget to also check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about how to be more focused, productive, creative, and happy using technology. And sign up for our mailing list to receive a free guide on how to find balance and manage your technology use with mindfulness. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast.